Coming up on Tech Nation, UC Berkeley professor Edward Ashford Lee talks about Plato and the Nerd, the creative partnership of humans and technology. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the current state of big data in the healthcare field. And Dr. Ajay Gupta from Rockwell Medical tells us about his work getting iron to very ill patients from cancer to kidney failure to long-term infections. The breakthrough came from scientific work almost two centuries ago. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. A sure laugh joke today is to follow the reveal of any confusing problem with the line, there's an app for that. In truth, much of what used to be confusing problems for us have been relieved, if not outright solved, by a selection of convenient and ever-present apps. Icon-wise, they're all pretty much the same and take up the same real estate on your screen. But screen real estate doesn't begin to tell how complex a technology emerges when your fingers tap the app. But it's all the same to the user. Getting from point A to point B, parking your car at a parking meter, sending and receiving money, checking all manner of statuses, texting quickly everyone and anyone and the list goes on get a ride edit and send a photo you just took find the closest anything your heart desires or your stomach demands and of course track the delivery of your online purchase which you might have made say a half hour ago on your watch but think about how much technology is really behind all this and all the innovation that had to take place and be in place to make it work. Many times we use apps that perform highly technical tasks and use major systems like GPS. Think about when you're out on the open road and it's telling you to drive another six miles before you need to exit. It's tracking your progress all the way along and comes up with warnings as you approach. It's good to remember that you're personally engaging the services of at least three satellites in low Earth orbit. Just saying. I mean, you have to agree that's impressive, especially when we all demand that we get it all for free. Still, that doesn't mean we, the users, are any more technical than we were before. The technology is in the app. It's in the device and all the connected and present technologies and information behind it. It increases our tech user skills for sure, but it doesn't increase our technical skills. The heavy lifting has been done, and this is an important distinction in our brave new world. Not to confuse the ability to seriously use a technology with the ability to build it and maintain it and move it forward. Just as when new products and services spread like wildfire, it doesn't mean any of us got more technical. But technology in the hands of tech users can also drive innovation. You don't have to be an engineer or a programmer to think up a new app. 
You think up the capabilities of an app. Then the rest is implementation. So there's the second split. The inventors of an app don't necessarily need to be the ones that build it. Think about it. Angie didn't build Angie's List. The basic question is, how technical are we? As a group, the human population. And there's actually a three-way split. Who can use it, who can design it, and who can build it? Some of us fall in all three groups. Yet it seems to me we're all pretty smart. Only a few isolated voices claim all this technology makes us dumber, like the few who argued that calculators would stop everyone from being able to do math, suggesting kids wouldn't be able to make change. But who needs change when your money is in the cloud? Yes, it's an interesting landscape today, and everyone is a part of it. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, UC Berkeley professor Edward Ashford Lee talks about how humans and technology evolve together. Then on Tech Nation Health, chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about big data in the healthcare field. And Dr. Ajay Gupta from Rockwell Medical talks about the problem of getting iron to critically ill patients. The answer came in the work of a French chemist in the 1800s. Edward Ashford Lee is the author of Plato and the Nerd, The Creative Partnership of Humans and Technology. He writes that his father was quite disappointed when he chose to study computer science and engineering. Since today, most parents would cheer. I wondered, why did that disappoint him? Well, I mean, my dad was um, a uh, 20th century guy, and um, his, I think, value system was that um, the pinnacle of activity was in law and business, and perhaps medicine would have been okay. Uh, when I uh, was growing up, he had a um, computer company in Puerto Rico, and he he ran a service bureau. This was back in the days when you know computers were very expensive, you know a huge investment, and um, you would uh, invest in a large computer and then sell the services. His view of engineers were they were the ones who worked for him. And he wanted me to be the boss, not the one working for someone else. And so to him, it was kind of disappointing when I went into engineering. Well, in those days, you bought a big hunk of iron, as they used to say. And the engineers that he would have been dealing with were there to maintain it. They weren't the creators of the technology. They weren't the kind of, you know, there's many different kinds of engineers, but they weren't the ones that really 
created it. So maybe that was also part of his thinking. I think that was a big part of the thinking. I mean, I think, um, I mean, in many ways, he, I think he almost drove me into this because uh, my, my first summer job was at his company. Uh, I, I got $20 a week. Uh, I was 14 years old, and I was assigned to work with one of the engineers who was maintaining the computers. And this poor guy didn't know what to do with me, you know, the boss's son, 14 years old. And uh, so, you know, I arrive on the first day and he has me, you know, sorting these bins of resistors, which are all color-coded, you know, into different bins. And I'm convinced that after I went home that night, he took all the resistors that I had sorted and poured them back into the bowl so that I would have something to do the next day. There couldn't be that many resistors in the world you kept sorting right. <laughs> on a daily basis. Well, one of the reasons I thought this is an important book to talk about is that everyday people are experiencing and talking about the experiencing of using technology, but they aren't familiar with the notion of creating technology. They often don't comprehend what engineers actually do. Their, their process is kind of like a black box, and you're kind of unpacking that. Yeah, well, that's actually the main reason that I wrote this book. I, I uh, You know that I teach at Berkeley. I teach electrical engineering and computer science. And we've been under enormous pressure recently because of, you know, sort of dual factors where the student interest in our field has gone through the roof. And so the demand on us, the pressure on our courses and so on is enormous. And, of course, the demand from uh, the economy for people who are trained in this area has also gone through the roof. And I, um, we've had a lot of stresses in the institution trying to handle this. And I really credit my colleagues for, you know, really stepping to the plate. And they're, you know, they're committed that, you know, we have to teach as many of these students as we possibly can. Um, but the stresses to the institution um, created some pretty interesting uh, and challenging discussions among us. And I came to realize in the course of these discussions that even, you know, the faculty at Berkeley, myself included, we really didn't have a good understanding of how it is that technology comes about. And so I set out on this project to just try to understand it better. And this book was the was the result of that project. The name of your book is Plato and the Nerd. And you actually got that from The Black Swan, uh, the book by Nassim Taleb. Now tie that in for us. Well, so first I should tell you that the the publisher hated the title, and they, they, <laughs> all publishers hate the book's title from the author's. I don't. What's that about? <laughs> yeah, you know, they they tried desperately to get me to change it, and uh, I played ball with them, and we we considered a lot of alternative titles, and none of them really worked as well for me, at least, as this one. And I think that the real reason that it resonated with me when I first. Uh, read it in in, uh, in Taleb's book, was um, that it really puts into opposition two very different ideas about how kind of the facts and truths about the world come into being. And it, it that's really the intent of this title. So the, the Plato in the title represents this idea that, that facts and truths about the world exist independent of humans, have always existed. They're sitting there in that platonic heaven waiting for us to discover them. And that, as a consequence, discovery is really sort of the ultimate intellectual activity, right? That you, you, when you discover something, you're simply revealing truths that already exist out there. And um, that is, of course, I think many of us, when we were educated, were kind of brainwashed into thinking, well, that's ultimate, the ultimate goal of science is to, is to um, 
unveil these truths that exist independent of us. And the opposing notion, which is represented by the nerd in this case, is um, getting at the idea that, well, actually, a lot of facts and truths about the world probably never did exist before. And they were brought into existence by some possibly quirky, idiosyncratic, creative process. And that um, if you think of technology as evolving through this kind of uh, creative process, then it's not as simple as just discovering things that pre-exist. And so I, I spend a lot of effort in the book kind of analyzing the relationship between discovery and invention and design. And I think that um, one of the key themes of the book is that um, actually a lot of what we're doing with technology is not unveiling pre-existing truths at all, but actually creating things that have never before existed and might not have existed if we hadn't gone down this sort of quirky, idiosyncratic path that we've gone down. Now, we're talking about information technology and digital technology, and you make a distinction uh, on the very first page, actually, that, that we must recognize that there are layers of creativity here. We often talk about all the creativity enabled by all the new digital media, but you're saying you, you really need to look that there's a lot of creativity that got us there present today. It wasn't like a grand history, which there is. But there's a lot of – we need to look at that creativity right there. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I'm trying to get across in this book is that a lot of people, including, frankly, myself as an instructor of this technology at Berkeley, tend to think of these when – we're, when we're teaching people about this technology, it's like we're teaching them facts and truths that are sort of – have always been there. Right. And you just need to learn these in order to be able to master this technology. But actually, all of this technology really was created by human minds. And the technology itself shapes the thought processes of the humans who are creating the technology. So if you think of, for example, programming languages, right, we there's a lot of talk about, you know, teaching kids to code these days um, as if, you know, Coding is something that has existed in a platonic heaven and that all we have to do is, you know, get the students familiar with that fact about the world that you can control things through coding. But it's not really like that, actually. And I spend some time in the book looking at, you know, the, the differences between programming languages and the people behind these programming languages and what they were after when they designed these programming languages. And you start to realize that... Um, the programming languages have personality and they shape the thought of the programmer and the designer in ways that we don't always realize. We don't realize actually how much our thought processes about technology are shaped by the very technology that we're designing. Heisenberg was right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look that up, listeners, but not if you're driving a car. Not if you're driving a car. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Edward Ashford Lee. Dr. Lee is the Robert S. Pepper Distinguished Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. He's researched, taught, written books, etc., on embedded systems, and he's here today with his book, Plato and the Nerd, The Creative Partnership of Humans and Technology. Now, 
I don't hear this from technical people, but I hear it from non-technical people. And most people are non-technical and they use technology, but they're not creators of technology. I constantly hear people project that digital technology can do anything. And it's just that. It's a projection. No, it can't. Yeah, that's um, another um, idea that I really worked hard at trying to get across in this book is uh, I think – um, it's obvious that that digital technology and computing are having a huge impact on our world. And I think that that drives an enormous amount of enthusiasm about it. And I hear all the time people, in fact, on your show just two weeks ago, you know, you were talking about, um, you were talking with this fellow from CES, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gary Shapiro. Gary Shapiro, yes. And, and he was talking about the software of the brain, right? And... Um, I think that was Gary, or maybe it was one of the other people <laughs> no, that you No, you're talking about day. John Barge, oh. who's a professor at Yale. That's for, who it was. Foremost professor and researcher in the unconscious brain. Right. Gary Shapiro will be pleased that he's been attributed with this, but no, okay. it's John Barge, yes. Okay. Uh, sorry about that. I'm a nerd, so I forget uh, names of people. And Yes. Um, so a lot of people these days are talking about the human cognitive process as if it's obviously digital and computational. Um, One of the things I point out in my book is that actually the digital and computational world has some pretty key limitations. One is that it's digital, and the other is that it's algorithmic, that everything proceeds in step-by-step fashion um, in a very discrete way, one step after another, like a recipe, like a cooking recipe. Um, and I don't think we have any evidence that the natural world has either of those limitations. Neither, neither do we know it to be digital, nor do we know it to be algorithmic. And the, the, the space of possible processes that you can have in the natural world is really much richer than this re- really rather tiny set of processes that we have been able to develop as a technology and are doing wonderful things with, don't get me wrong. But just because we can do wonderful things with it doesn't mean that things in the natural world like human cognitive processes actually work that way. I'm going to combine here two titles of successive chapters because the the point together is important. Hardware is ephemeral, software endures. Let's explain that notion. Yeah, so the the key observation there is that um, I think we have a natural tendency to think of things that are embodied in the physical world as being uh, durable. They endure. In fact, the word endure um, comes from the French, which, you know, when you talk about um, uh, on construit maison en dur, it means you build a house out of hard material, right? And so endure means out of hard material, and that's what makes it last. And so we think of the things that we think of the things that have this embodiment in the physical world as being durable, and things in the in the world of ideas as being more ephemeral. And I think what we see in the technology is that it's exactly the reverse: that the ideas behind uh, digital design and software last much longer than the hardware. The hardware is a completely transient thing; it becomes obsolete very quickly. We throw it away. And the software continues beyond that. And that software is really an, an embodiment of, um, of human cognitive processes. And it has a very tight relationship with the, with the development of those cognitive processes. And in truth, 
once we could bounce the complexity of that software from hardware to hardware to hardware, which happened in the 70s, basically, uh, we were able to start producing computers and anything with a chip in it much, much faster because we could bring the software along, the human cognitive process, if you will, along. Yeah, so I, I, I talk in the book about this um, co-evolution of humans and technology, and that's actually an idea that I, I first got from um, George Dyson's book, uh, Turing's Cathedral, which is a really wonderful book. I recommend it. It's, a, it's really a history of computing with a very strong focus on, on John von Neumann. Um, but towards the end of the book, uh, Dyson uh, indulges in some speculations about where the technology is going, and he has this absolutely wonderful description of uh, of the symbiotic relationship that humans and technology have become, really. Um, and so I, I developed that idea further in my book, and uh, this symbiosis is really about the fact that the technology actually helps the humans to further develop the technology, which then helps the humans even more to further develop the technology. You have this this feedback loop that is uh, a, a very effective feedback loop and I think accounts for the enormous progress that we've had in this technology in the last 40, 50 years. Okay, let's talk about the self-driving car. Mm. Everybody's got a different perception. There's lots of realities. Let's talk about that. Okay. I, one of the interesting things about uh, the debate these days about artificial intelligence more broadly um, is that a lot of people think of it as trying to replicate what humans do. And in my view, that's very a very scientific approach, right? We have a notion of what intelligence is. It's what we carry around in our brains. It comes from the natural world. And um, we'd like to build models and machines that emulate that natural behavior. This is what scientists do. They build models to match something that they find uh, in nature. And if we think of artificial intelligence that way, then obviously the goal is to um, replicate what humans do in these machines. Um, but I don't think that's actually what we're doing in artificial intelligence. I think what we're doing is much more um, what engineers do with models where um, I think engineers use models in an almost mirror image way to the way scientists do. So whereas to a scientist, the value of a model lies in, in how well it behaves like the physical thing being modeled, to an engineer, the value of a physical thing lies in how well it behaves like the model. This is a, like a very, very important point. Say that again. So... It's it, it's a very complementary use of models. So so one way to think about it is that um, uh, you know a scientist asks, "Can I build a model for this thing?" An engineer asks, "Can I build a thing for this model?" Right? These are not the same thing, and the models that you would build are are not going to be the same models. Uh, in a in a similar way, um, the ultimate goal of science, I think, is to reduce the number of relevant models, the models that we need to explain the physical world. The fewer we have, the better. Whereas an engineer tries to increase the number of relevant models, the number of models for which we can build physical things, right, where the physical thing will behave like the model. So if you view the whole problem of AI and specifically self-driving cars this way, then you realize that the goal shouldn't be to behave like humans, it should be 
to give us to deliver safe, effective, efficient transportation. And the designs that we end up with may be really quite different from the designs that we would end up with. I mean, think about it. The most extreme scenario would be if the self-driving car is a uh, humanoid robot that you, you know, order on Amazon. It comes in a box and you stick it in the driver's seat of your car and it operates the accelerator pedal and the steering wheel and, and um, you know, emulates the human um, driving that car. That would be an obviously ridiculous design. And that's not really what we're doing with self-driving cars. And I think we should be thinking of self-driving cars more broadly as just making a transportation system that is potentially very much safer and very much more efficient than uh, what we humans can do. This is a really good point. Uh, many people say, well, are you going to build a self-driving car? Are you going to build one? Are you going to build one to various you know, entities? And the point is, every engineer has multiple designs. From you get the box from Amazon, <laughs> you stick the person, the robot in your car, to who knows what. Uh, I know one design from Mercedes-Benz has no steering wheel. You know, it's like this is, does it have to be 100% self-driving? You know, what are we talking about here? What's the right design for humans in what conditions doing what? You know, and I think that's how engineers think. They don't think, uh, well, we'll just get the box and it's done. It's like, what's that optimal design that moves us forward? I think it's also important to understand that these these designs don't uh, exist in isolation. They have to operate within a human culture. And I, I had this interesting reaction when I was starting to work on this book, and I happened to see a flatbed truck that had uh, just loaded up a, a fairly late model car where the front end of the car was completely smashed up. And my reaction was a little bit weird, even for me, um, I thought to myself, that car should be ashamed of itself. There is no excuse for putting cars on the road today that will happily run into the car in front of them at 60 miles an hour, no matter what the driver is telling it to do. In fact, there's a, a lot of cars out there on the road today that have the technology. Uh, in They have the, these adaptive cruise control systems, so they have the technology on board to prevent those kinds of rear-end collisions. But if you don't have the, cr the cruise control turned on, um, the car will happily run into the car in front of it at 60 miles an hour and kill someone. And to me, there is absolutely no excuse for that. And I ask, you know, I ask executives at the car companies why, why this is. And they say, well, you know, liability laws. And so it's this interplay with culture um, that, you know, we, we have uh, uh, all, all these cultural mechanisms around, around liability and responsibility that have to evolve along with the technology. And in fact, right now, it's those cultural mechanisms that are holding back the technology uh, rather than you know technical issues. We really could make cars very, very much safer than they are today at very modest cost. And we're not doing that nearly as aggressively as I think we should be. There's a term that uh, you hear in science, you hear in engineering, you hear in computer science as an example. It's the term paradigm and paradigm shifts. Many people aren't familiar with it, but it's very important, I think, these days to, to use that because I think it can, can influence how we think about things. Let's talk about paradigms. Sure, yeah. So um, my favorite way to talk about this topic is to quote Donald Rumsfeld, who I don't quote very often, but um, 
everyone knows, you know, in his famous interview in 2002 when uh, we were involved in the Iraq War. I'm speaking with UC Berkeley professor Edward Ashford Lee, the author of Plato and the Nerd, The Creative Partnership of Humans and Technology. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation, Biotech Nation, and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about big data in healthcare, and Dr. Ajay Gupta from Rockwell Medical takes us back to the work of a French chemist in the 1800s to solve the challenge of getting iron to critically ill patients. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with UC Berkeley professor Edward Ashford Lee about his book, Plato and the Nerd The Creative Partnership of Humans and Technology. My favorite way to talk about this topic is to quote Donald Rumsfeld, who I don't quote very often, but um, everyone knows, you know, in his famous interview in 2002 when uh, we were involved in the Iraq War when he talked about, you know, the difficulties of, of, uh, of prosecuting this war. And, you know, he talked about the fact that there are known knowns, things we know are going to happen and, you know, that we know about. And we have um, the known unknowns, the things we know that we don't know. And then he said that the really difficult problem is the unknown unknowns, the things we don't know but we don't know we don't know them. Um, there's a fourth category that he left out, which is um, the unknown knowns. So these are the things we know, but we don't know we know them. And the fact is that we all have them. And in fact, they, they are very powerful in, their way, in the way that they shape everything we do. We have this, this background knowledge, but we don't think of it as things that we know. And so we don't question it. And I think that a lot of the cultural backdrop uh, behind technology takes this form of these unknown knowns. And it's not just in the, on the cultural side. So with self-driving cars, for example, um, you know, there's obviously the liability laws. Those are squarely in the world of, of, 
human culture. But there's also a lot in the world of the technology development itself. So a, a, an engineer who um, picks up a particular uh, task of writing a program in some programming language will have uh, his or her thought shaped by this programming language in ways that they're completely unaware of. And it really is unknown knowns that are going to affect the outcome of that engineering project uh, in ways that can be very hard to anticipate. Well, let's jump to uh, the user creativity of all this digital technology, which which it affords us. One of our tech nation rules of life in the high-tech age is those who build a technology can never predict how it will be used. Turns out that's an understatement. <laughs> it is an understatement, and I think that I would go a step further and say those who build the technology can't predict what the technology is going to do. Um, not in and of how, itself. In and of itself, not even just how it's going to be used. And I think I think one of the things that, that you know, maybe many of us don't realize is um, that um, there's almost uh, uh, what I would describe as a Darwinian coevolution happening with humans and technology. So the fact is that most programs, most software that is written um, dies. It disappears, right? The vast majority of it will just, you know, not survive into the next year. And many times, you know, if you have a modestly successful piece of software and maybe start a company around it and your and your company does okay for a little bit and but then, you know, goes belly up, um, the software will die along with the company. So you have this kind of cultural artifact, this corporation, this uh, this conceptual thing that, that died, uh, the software died also. And in many ways, it's because the symbiosis was ineffective. The software was unable to provide for the people who were nurturing the software, right? That's uh, um, what caused it to fail. So the fact that most of the software and most of the technology that gets created doesn't survive is kind of indicative that, well, why is it that what survives survives? And I think that there's a lot of accident in that. And we tend to give too much credit, really, to the inventors of the ones that of the of the artifacts that survive. Uh, I think they get more credit than they deserve, really. I mean, many of them, uh, there's a lot of luck involved. Certainly, there's a lot of creativity and a lot of invention involved as well. But um, there's a lot of very creative, very inventive, and very well-designed technological artifacts that do not survive. And so I see our environment as really being uh, very much a Darwinian coevolution, where kind of the human ideas around the technology are, are fighting it out to survive and propagate. Um, and the technology itself is fighting it out and trying to propagate, and some of it succeeds and much of it fails. Well, there's a lot more to this book than what we're, we've talked about. I mean, it's you don't need a degree to read this, and uh, it's very thought-provoking. Um, it's just several hundred pages long. Don't think you're going to read it in a couple of hours, though. <laughs> you got to read the book. Um, it's only it's only 250 pages. I tried yeah. to keep it very compact, um, <laughs> but it's. But you couldn't help yourself. You had to put 12 equations in. I did have to put 12 equations in, and uh, I uh, 
I joke about in the book, my, my PhD thesis advisor, Dave Messerschmidt, once told me that every equation you add to a book cuts your readership in half. And so if you do the math, that means that I would probably have a factor of 4,000 more readers if I had not put in any of these equations. But honestly, they're, they're easy equations. You can skip them without, without losing too much. But I, I really do feel like they add value because they add a certain uh, rigor to the arguments. So I hope that they don't intimidate people. Well, Edward, thank you so much. Uh, please come back. We'd love to see you again. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Moira. I I really enjoyed this. My guest today is Edward Ashford Lee. Dr. Lee is the Robert S. Pepper Distinguished Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. His book is Plato and the Nerd, The Creative Partnership of Humans and Technology. It's published by the MIT Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the reality of big data in healthcare. And Dr. Ajay Gupta from Rockwell Medical tells us about the challenge of getting the right amount of iron to very ill patients. The answer comes from the work of a French chemist in the 1800s. And now Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft. Well, we live in this exponential age where our digital environment can pick up huge amounts of data from our tracking our steps and our sleep, uh, you know, from our wearables to the massive amount of information that's in our electronic medical records, including imaging data, uh, to our own gene sequences, which you can now get for less than $1,000 and store in the cloud, um, to all the information from our social networks and beyond. But most of that data is very siloed and hard to access. It doesn't come together. You know, and a good example of where we can leverage big data and we do it every day is, let's say, um, our weather data. Um, we, we use the, the National Oceanographic Association has an API that now can sync to your smartphone app, which gives you data information. That might be leveraging everything from a map of your local environment to the pollen counts to, uh, uh, to the traffic. What if we took some of that same sort of big data elements, including your digital health exhaust, your microbiome, your genomic information, your clinical data, started to layer up and make it much more accessible because it's the combination of those data streams that's going to lead us to this world of more precision, personalized, proactive uh, healthcare. And there's some pretty interesting examples of this coming together. In exponential medicine, we had uh, John Brownstein, who's the head of innovation at Boston Children's Hospital in Boston, where I trained in pediatrics. They're doing some really interesting work now to take the big data from imaging. You know, they do, let's say, hundreds or thousands of brain MRIs on kids, some with certain genetic and other issues. They're now working with GE and others to start to understand the signals in some of those that, that you can sort of add that sort of information layer in a, in a scan done outside of Boston. So. There's not a lot of pediatric radiologists in the world. You can start to augment that with the big data mashed up with AI to start informing um, better diagnostics. So collective data is going to be telling us a lot more about the human condition. Well, it's collective and crowdsourced in a sense. Uh, you know, my favorite example, I think we've spoken this in prior episodes here, is that 
it was 10 years ago this this fall that the first iPhone came out. Before that, we were still driving with pretty much with paper maps. And now we couldn't imagine driving without Google Maps or Waze. Uh, you know, that's crowdsourced driving data based on your shared information, what's your speed and location on the streets. That's pretty private data if you think about it. But we wouldn't want to give that up because we want the traffic and we want to get to where we're going. We could think about a same level of crowdsourcing data uh, from multiple elements, from our, from our genomics, from our medical record, from our tweets, from our connected home data, the Internet of Medical Things, and use that in smarter ways. And we're starting to see that enter the hospital situation. Let's say I've spent a lot of time working in, say, intensive care units. You're looking at a lot of data off in a spreadsheet. It's not easy to synthesize that in your brain. You want to be proactive before a patient gets septic, has a blood infection, and you have to start antibiotics and draw blood culture. What if you could pick that up an hour or five hours early based on subtle changes in blood pressure, heart rate, temperature that you wouldn't normally see by looking at the data in a human way um, and pulling that together to, to, be, to act earlier and, and hopefully you know, keep that infection from becoming life-threatening or very expensive to, to treat. So we're seeing sort of the ability now in, in an average intensive care unit to collect that data and the ability to maybe make sense of it and mash it up and use that for making decisions about when to take the breathing tube out, when to treat a patient more in a more personalized way, how to staff your hospital. You know, what's the, uh, uh, the, the weather? Is it a full moon? Is there a big football game? Are you expecting more accidents? You might literally staff your hospital up using some of that kind of information. And full moon makes a difference. I think that's been studied. It's a bit of a misnomer. That's a bit of a joke <laughs> that uh, it's been looked at. And I think the, the data shows it, it really doesn't make a difference. But there's lots of lore about, you know, when when women come in to deliver babies, et cetera, based on the moon. Um, and some of it may, if you look at the right data in the right form, give us information. But one of the terms coined by uh, John Brownstein and others is this idea of a digital phenotype. Each of us now can be exuding all sorts of information, again, from our omics that might be changing, like our microbiome, to our to how much we're tweeting, to how much sleep, to where we're driving and how fast that can be used in really interesting ways, including in population health. So let's say you're worried about, um, you can take a common platform like Yelp, uh, and one of the most common uses is where people complain that they got a, a bad GI infection from uh, going to a restaurant. You can start to mine information from Yelp and have find hotspots of, here's a restaurant that might need to be looked at, or public health information around the world, digital disease detection, uh, where we can look at the web of, of information and, and pull out the data points and predict that Ebola is coming up or Zika and look at its transmission and spread based on where people are searching for symptoms or searching about um, their GI symptoms might be mean that there's a, there's a flu blood coming through. So lots of ways we can start to leverage this big data across healthcare, particularly in public health, where the ability to rapidly assess and respond can, can save thousands or millions of lives. It's one thing to have HIPAA protecting data about us, our health data, but now we're talking about massive amounts of health data. I can't even imagine getting my hands around my own health data. Right. We're in this era of exploding data, but data doesn't translate to actionable information that you can use as Moira, or I can use as Daniel, or I can use on my patients, or a hospital system, or pharma uh, can leverage. So the challenge is to make it digestible and actionable. And that's where the, I think, the exciting combination of big data with machine learning and AI is coming together so that I don't want to look at my raw step, step data or sleep information. I want to see this synthesized score, which I already can get with some of the wearables I have from this ring that tracks my sleep to my Apple Watch. We want to be able to transmit that to a clinician who can see it in their workflow in a day-to-day -day basis. No clinician now wants your big data. They want to see your check engine light. They want to understand, oh, wow, something's changed in Moira's resting heart rate at night, going from 60 to 75. Something's going on. I might want to call her. 
we might learn from other information about you to really uh, tune that proactive uh, phone call or to pick it up you know, even before things have changed. So the real uh, crux of this is to bring this all together, integrate into the workflow, protect the information with things like HIPAA, which frankly is a well-meaning law but a bit outdated. It's supposed to be the Healthcare Portability Act and privacy. The, the, the Portability Act part has gone away in many cases and can be a barrier to innovation. But to leverage these tools so that you as an individual, myself as a clinician or a healthcare system or a payer, can take that big data and be, again, proactive and not wait for disease to happen, but use the sort of signals and uh, find the needle in haystack that can be actionable. This is the old information is data in context. And it's like, yeah, worry a little about your data, but you really are looking for the information. What's the synthesis of it? The synthesis of the information and then how to use that in a more seamless way. I mean, today we talk about the Uberization of healthcare and uh, new companies have sprouted up. They're kind of becoming the, the Uber meets transportation needs for, for patients uh, where they can get to the clinic when they need to. They can leverage the big data of, of, of whether or not, let's say you have a, a child with asthma, you can look at the big data synthesized of the pollen counts and be proactive about picking their, uh, starting on their steroid inhaler earlier. You might be a public health uh, worker in D.C. looking at patterns of flights and infections in Europe and being proactive about who you might want to screen when they come to the United States. So this is really a very interesting era, and the need for new data scientists and the merger of information and AI and machine learning into healthcare is, is really at its interesting crux. And part of the focus of what we, we saw this year at Exponential Medicine is that it's moving from big data to actionable information we can use across the healthcare continuum. Well, Daniel, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Mara. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. We all know that we need iron, but the chronically ill are particularly challenged. Dr. Ajay Gupta is the chief scientific officer of Rockwell Medical. Patients who have uh chronic inflammatory conditions, for example, cancer, patients with kidney failure, patients who have chronic infections, they have uh, very high levels of this molecule called hepcidin, which is produced from the liver. Hepcidin not only blocks the absorption of iron from the gut, but it also prevents the iron release from the iron stores in the body. Therefore, the body may have iron, but it cannot be released from the storage system. Iron is normally stored in uh, these cells called macrophages. So, hepcidin blocks the release of iron from the macrophages, so it cannot get to the iron carrier in the blood, which is the protein transferrin, which is what carries it to the bone marrow, where it is utilized to make uh, hemoglobin within the freshly made red blood cells. So you want to have the iron get to the transferrin, and then the rest will take care of itself. That is correct. That is correct. So a number of years back, you were scratching your head, saying, how do we do this? So what would you do? Yes, indeed. Uh, I was actually in 1995 working as a nephrologist at Henry Ford Hospital. And a nephrologist is? A, a kidney doctor. And the idea occurred to me, that during the process of dialysis, as we are removing the toxins from the body, we are also infusing into these patients molecules like bicarbonate, like calcium. So I thought, why don't we infuse iron 
these patients lose iron with every dialysis session. And therefore, I thought that uh, if I could put iron into the dialysis solution, then it will slowly go across the dialyzer membrane. And then I wanted to have an iron that would directly bind to transferrin. Unfortunately, all the iron compounds that are currently in use are these large globules of, uh, of iron. It has thousands of iron ferric oxide atoms uh, or molecules in the central core surrounded by a shell of carbohydrate. And the idea of the carbohydrate shell is to prevent the iron from coming in direct contact with the cells because iron can be potentially very toxic. So these large globules are insoluble and they cannot be added to the dialysis solution. They won't transfer across the dialyzer membrane because they are too big. So I had to go back to the old history from the 1800s. And indeed, the scientists in 1800s, they wanted to infuse iron intravenously into the patients who cannot tolerate oral iron. And there are a lot of patients who cannot tolerate oral iron. They have gastrointestinal side effects, etc. So first they started infusing these iron salts, like for example, iron ascorbate. But these salts will fall apart in the circulation and the free iron will be very toxic. And it would cause uh, respiratory distress uh, and the blood pressure will go down. And many patients in fact died because of these uh, compounds being infused. But then I discovered that a French chemist, Rabiquet, back in 1857, had synthesized an iron salt called soluble ferric pyrophosphate. Rabiquet, in his oration before the French Academy, noted that the iron was highly concealed in this iron salt. Its properties were masked. It was highly soluble compound and it was highly stable. So I thought this would be perfect. And as I started looking into it, more properties of this compound came out, which were already known that the pyrophosphate component of this molecule, in fact, promotes the iron transfer very rapidly to this uh, protein, iron carrier transferrin. And in fact, the transferrin molecule has a binding site for pyrophosphate. So this was perfect. This was like a laser-guided yeah. bomb. We fly directly to your city. Great. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And therefore, I went to the FDA. I started these phase two trials with the food-grade material, which was available. The trial was highly successful. And uh, subsequently, the FDA asked me to make a pharmaceutical-grade uh, uh, iron salt, which received a new name called ferric pyrophosphate citrate. We did a number of toxicology studies, then we did our phase three studies, which were highly successful, and the drug was approved by the FDA in the US in 2015, and the drug has been used in the US market over the last two years, very successfully, without any side effects. The unique thing about this drug is that it is very, very safe. Every single component of the drug, the iron, the pyrophosphate, and the citrate are physiologic. So there are certain problems with the current intravenous iron formulations that are used, these iron carbohydrate complexes, 
because the carbohydrate can cause these catastrophic reactions anaphylaxis because the body reacts to the, the, the carbohydrate and the patients can develop respiratory distress, uh, hypotension, their blood pressure goes down into their boots and uh, they have a cardiovascular collapse and many patients in fact die from these reactions. Because this compound triferic does not have any carbohydrate or sugar moiety, therefore it has negligible risk of uh, anaphylaxis. And in fact, we have administered now more than 150,000 doses of triferic and haven't had a single instance of uh, anaphylaxis. So that appears to be a major advantage of uh, this drug. Also, there are other benefits uh, in terms of uh, the intravenous iron, as I mentioned before, gets sequestered in the scavenger system of the body, the macrophages. But triferic is able to overcome this functional iron deficiency. So these patients who have inflammation, like cancer patients, patients with kidney disease, they may have enough iron in the body, but it's not getting to transferrin. And that is called functional iron deficiency. And triferic is the only iron compound delivered directly into the circulation that is able to overcome this functional iron deficiency without causing a tissue iron overload. And as you realize, iron can be highly toxic. That's why body has these mechanisms to prevent too much iron getting into the body. And that's exactly what happens in with intravenous iron, uh, the traditional intravenous iron, that it causes this tissue iron overload, which can be potentially very harmful. And that is avoided by the use of uh, triferic. This is such a great story in so many ways. One is that you went back centuries to see what was going on. Most of the scientists I know, they're having a hard time reading all the papers that are being published now. They figure what's now is, you know, that's the latest, greatest. How hard is it to go back several centuries to see what was published and what was used then? Well, I was fortunate that I had uh, very good resources at hand at the hospital where I was working, and I had very good support and I was able to go back to the literature from the 1800s and hence discovered this particular iron salt, which really is a fantastic molecule. Now, you couldn't just walk through the front door of the library and they had the book sitting there, right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, we had a very good librarian who became my friend and she helped me in this process. All this literature was not necessarily online. And uh, we had to really dig deep, and she had to dig deep to find what I was looking for. You mentioned that the scientists spoke to the, the National Academy in France. He didn't give that lecture in English. The transcript that I had was in English. I'm not sure if he delivered his oration in French or in English. I suspect you are right that this must have been in French and then subsequently translated into English. I think it's very interesting, the idea that the primary compound you're looking at has been shielded and masked. Um, this, is a, this is a major concept. It kind of comes packaged, uh, prepackaged to the patient. Indeed, indeed. The iron in this particular salt 
is so highly concealed that even when you treat this molecule with nitric acid, the iron does not get released. And it's actually a very elegant concept. The iron stays very tightly bound to the pyrophosphate in the circulation. And the pyrophosphate lets go of the iron only when it sees a transferrin molecule swing, swing by. A transferrin come by. Exactly. And the, because the transferrin binds that iron 10 times more strongly than pyrophosphate does. So pyrophosphate will let go of the iron so that it can bind to transferrin. But in the meantime, while the iron is bound to pyrophosphate very tightly, it is not visible to the cells. And therefore, it doesn't have any toxicity. It does not induce any oxidative stress, which is a major problem with the traditional intravenous iron compounds. The other issue is infections. So I think we increasingly recognize that intravenous iron causes infections because iron serves as a nutrient for bacteria. Triferric, on the other hand, is very physiological type of iron. It is like eating a steak. And in our phase three trials, which are placebo-controlled, we see that the incidence of infections with triferric is identical or is same as placebo. Therefore, this is a unique iron, a very physiological iron that does not increase the risk of infections. And infections are a major problem in patients who are inflamed, like dialysis patients, patients with cancer, because of the immunocompromise that these patients have. And I think that's a very significant uh, beneficial effect of this particular iron salt, other than not causing uh, anaphylaxis and being very physiological and not inducing oxidative stress. I like the idea that it comes with its own wrapper. <laughs> Does it give you any ideas for drug discovery in the future? Indeed, I think this whole concept that Robbie Kue invented of concealing drugs is now becoming widespread with uh, nanotechnology and nanomedicine. And credit goes to Robbie Kue for actually describing this concept for the very first time. Dr. Ajay Gupta is the Chief Scientific Officer of Rockwell Medical. More information is available at rockwellmed.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.